Hello, MJ fam. This is Elise Capron signing in from Studio San Diego, and I am so excited to welcome you to episode 163 of the MJ Cast, our annual Christmas special. Welcome. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Today, I am thrilled to have our entire core team on the show and a special guest. I'm going to introduce everybody first. And I also want to wish everybody a happy holidays. We're so excited to have this annual gathering to chat about news and updates and all kinds of stuff. So thank you for being here. Today, we have our amazing show founder and frequent host, Jamin Bull. Hey, Jamin. Hi, how's it going? Good, good. So excited to chat with you. You and I have not been on an episode together in a while, so it's very exciting. (laughs) Yeah, I'm super excited. Merry Christmas. It's going to be so much fun to talk about all these topics. I can't wait. I know. I can't wait, too. And we, of course, have our longtime team member, award-winning investigative journalist, Charlie Thompson. Charlie, how are you doing over there in the UK? I'm doing my best. How are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Poor Charlie. Oh, my gosh. We're going to try to take it easy on you. I am doing great. Thank you. Season's greetings. Yeah, season's greetings. We'll we'll uh, take it easy on you until the um, legal updates we're going to go over. And then we also have our absolutely amazing, talented audio editor and occasional co-host, Charlie Carter. Charlie, how is everything going down there in Australia? Absolutely hectic, but loving it. How are you, Elise? (laughs) I am really, really good. And then our very special guest, who I'm just so honored to say is our regular special guest for our Christmas episodes. We love this. We have the one and only Taj Jackson. Welcome, Taj. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Great. Well, we're just so excited for you to be here. And it really does mean the world to us that you have joined us for the last several Christmas episodes. We love having this chance to chat with you, get updates from your world and just share in the special time. So thank you. Of course, of course, it's tradition. It is. It is tradition. We love it. Um, So yeah, we've got a lot of news to get through, big stuff that's happened in the world of Michael Jackson, Jackson fan communities, got lots of catching up. But first of all, just wanted to touch base with you guys. So down in Australia, it is the start of summer vacation. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, we've just schools just finished, at least in my state in Queensland. Uh, Now we're entering into the Christmas holidays which is always so wild. So we were talking in our group chat the other day about the fact, which I guess makes sense because, you know, it's Australia, but Jamin, you have never seen snow in your entire life. Is that right? Just as we think about Christmas. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's actually true. I've never seen snow before. One day I hope to, but... (laughs) (laughs) while simultaneously uh charlie thompson you are is it snowing right now (laughs) it's not snowing right now but it was snowing last friday um Mm. in the morning however it was too wet so it didn't settle it was just snow in the air i quite like it when it snows and when it settles but um 
it you know for a day or something but then what happens is everybody treads on it and it turns from snow into a death trap sort of gets compacted <laughs> down and down and then um becomes treacherous but it's yeah. pretty for the first day it is it is very pretty and um i mean here in san diego where i'm based and for utah too we're in the lovely position yeah, where say, we yeah. can yeah somebody you could potentially go surfing in the morning and skiing in the evening so <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool Taj are you guys is your family are you guys skiers the first time I actually tried skiing I tore my knee um so oh, no. <laughs> yeah that was at like 12 years old and so I did try it again later on but I would say we're more sledders than skiers sledders I do so do you do this do you do like the the little um like uh what is it the little disc lid things that you sit in or do you yeah. like the traditional toboggan thing both both okay. both yeah that and the tire as well with the oh, all the three tire. the trifecta yes oh okay <laughs> old school old school and do you have a special like hill that you go to that's your favorite not really i mean we've tried a couple of them uh the the problem with the hill is then you got to walk up it and i'm the one that's carrying everything so you know don't try and go up a a a really steep hill for that reason i learned that lesson just something that's steep enough for the kids to enjoy it but not steep enough for me to be sore after you know for a couple of days is is ideal (laughs) and so your girls have done this as well you've taken them sledding yes of course yeah that's awesome yeah that's awesome. And um, Taylor just had her fifth birthday. Is that right? Yeah. You know, it's amazing because she's growing so quickly and I'm so proud of her, all my kids. But in general, it's just like, yeah, just it's living vicariously through them. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, with Michael, there is a magic with kids and him seeing through their eyes. Having my kids, it's like I feel so connected to that in that way. And I can see it through their eyes and their their innocence, but also looking at the world through that innocence. And so it actually brings me a lot of joy. I mean, this is a weird world to look through it and through those lens, you know, with what's going on in, in just the whole world today. But the childhood aspect of it really makes me happy. Yeah, I think that's been my biggest lesson so far as newish parent. My daughter just turned two and it's the same thing. Just watching um, her experience, everything is pretty remarkable. Yeah, right? Yeah. 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 Um, that is so cool. Well, um, yeah, just so excited to be here with you guys. And we are wrapping up, I cannot believe, season nine of the MJ cast. Um, we're going to be going into season 10 next year. It's wild and blows Double my digits. mind. Hello. I know. I mean, Jamin, how do you feel about this? Like, you, along with Q, founded this show. It's going to be a decade, man. <laughs> I know. It just, I've got to pinch myself. Seriously, 10 years. That's a big chunk of my life. It's like, um, <laughs> um, that's so weird to think about, but we will have been doing the MJ cast for like more than a quarter of my life <laughs> soon. Congrats. It's just Congrats. nuts. Like, <laughs> but super, uh, super proud of it too. Like, um, yeah, we've, we've had some great episodes this season. I guess we'll talk about that towards the end of the show, like our thoughts on how the season's gone and everything like that. But it just feels great to be able to continue capturing stories of people that knew Michael Jackson and worked with him and 
just can't wait to get more of those stories in the future. I agree. And yes, we will be talking about the year in review um, after we get through some news first, because a lot has happened. So we'll be tackling a few big um, topics uh, first, and then we'll reflect on the year that was. So much has has happened within the, the fan community, all kinds of stuff. And I think with that in mind, let's jump right into it. So the real big news, of course, as all fans know, is that the Thriller 40 documentary was officially released very recently, uh, made by Nelson George. And this has been interesting because it really is, you know, it's been percolating basically for the whole last year. Of course, the draft version of the film was shown just over a year ago in several major cities, including Los Angeles, London, Sydney, and a few others, I believe. And so a lot of fans got to see that early version of the film. And so it's really interesting to compare the the final version that's now been released on major streaming platform Paramount Plus and Showtime. So a lot of fan responses coming out, a lot of thoughts out there in this year of, I guess we can call it Thriller 41, really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we're a little behind the curve. <laughs> Um, but it is very exciting to to see it come out. So yeah, let's let's dive into thoughts, you guys. Who would like to start? Jamin, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to. To be honest, I went into it thinking that I was really not going to like it because most of the people that I know have been highly critical of the documentary. I saw a lot of commentary online. JD did a great video on it discussing its flaws. And, you know, most people that I really respect and know really pointed out all of its flaws in great detail, especially that um, episode that we did, the Thriller 40 Roundtable. Carter and Damien and, and folks who saw that really did a great job pointing out, you know, why it was a work in progress and how it could have been better. So my expectations were mega, mega low. And when I uh, watched it on Paramount Plus, I gotta, I gotta say, I didn't hate it. Like there were things in it, absolutely, that were some serious flaws and we can get to that. But in general, I kind of enjoyed it. In my head, the way that I got to that place was that even Nelson George in the documentary says that the point of it or what he was focusing on is the impact culturally of thriller on society, on culture. And I think that is the one thing where the documentary really, really succeeds. And you look at other works on thriller, whether it be, say, uh, Sonic Fantasy by Mark Oscarbotta or... Damien Shields' Genesis of Thriller podcast, they focus on totally different things. Damien focuses on the the evolution of the songs. Marcos focuses on the story of, you know, the quote-unquote dream team with Quincy and Bruce Wadeen and their stories and the story of the creation of the album itself. But this documentary focuses on how much this amazing piece of work impacted the world broadly. And I think it really succeeded in that. It is flawed because it doesn't touch on the other things that well. But you know what? I probably won't watch it again, to be honest. I don't think I really need to. But for the couple of hours that I spent with it, I walked away from it feeling like that was nice. It was nice. I walked away from the the preview viewing last year quite liking it. I did. I mean, obviously, there the, were the things that we discussed on the, the Thriller 40 roundtable that there were some potential flaws. And now it's on Paramount Plus. I have uh, used the cheeky seven day free trial to watch it again. I came away from it a little bit similar to when I watched Bohemian Rhapsody. And at the end of that, you're thinking, well, is there more? Um, I wanted more. I, I sort of felt a little, not empty. Empty is completely the wrong word. I felt like there was more of the story to tell. 
or maybe that's exactly what they're going for. They're leaving you at the end of it wanting more. Uh, but my major takeaways from it were it's great to see some high-quality footage and audio from the Victory Tour, uh, seeing Michael with his brothers uh, on stage there. The story timeline was a little bit all over the place in that they go from talking about Michael's Burns to the Grammy Awards, uh, so it wasn't necessarily in chronological order. Am I right there? I think that the, the Michael's hair catching fire was after he won all the Grammys. I believe so. Yeah, and and also having the chairman of TikTok, whose name I have no idea what it is, <laughs> mansplaining what a like is, yeah, was just a little bit, mate, what are you doing? Yeah, that section I was like, is this an ad for TikTok? Yeah. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> it was a bit odd. <laughs> well, I found the comparison of, of, of where they were saying that it gives people of this generation the chance to experience what people experienced in the 1980s when the thriller video came out or the short film came out for the first time. That's not experiencing it. A 30-second clip on TikTok is absolutely nothing like the anticipation, I would imagine, of people waiting for the thriller short film to come out. But look, there were some really good sections in the in the documentary with Matt Forger and Steve Lukather and Greg Fillingaines, all of that was really good. And to hear Michael talking about some things himself and some private footage, if you like, was, was great to hear as well. And it's all footage that we'd never seen before. So from that point of view, I think it was great. You kind of mentioned some of the talking heads. When I think about this compared to Spike Lee's films, which I really enjoy Spike Lee's documentaries, he did, this is just a gut reaction because I have not gone and rewatched Spike Lee's recently, but I felt like the talking heads were a little bit more actually directly connected to Michael Jackson for the most part than in Spike's films, which I felt like some of the talking heads were like kind of a stretch. So I appreciated that element a bit. There were a few, I mean, like Misty Copeland, for example, I thought was a little, maybe a little bit of a reach, but I do think it added some of that context in terms of a, giving a reality check of like how significant it was to see a Black artist in particular making these kind of strides in the industry and what that really means from a cultural standpoint. So um, so I still enjoyed that. Yeah. And the other thing that, that got highlighted to me last week, which I think is quite an interesting point is that obviously this documentary is called Thriller 40 and it's based around the 40th anniversary of the release of the album, which is 30th of November, 1982. The documentary was released on Paramount on December 2nd, 2023, which is the 40th anniversary, I believe, of when the Thriller for short film was premiered. So there is a 40th anniversary in there. It's just not the one that we thought it was going to be. Right. <laughs> Taj, we haven't heard from you yet. Would you like to chime in with your overview thoughts? Yeah, you know, for, for me, I didn't see it early. So I, I saw it on Paramount Plus Showtime, courtesy of the trial. And it was very, 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 very interesting for me to see that. It's hard because I love just seeing footage of my uncle. I love seeing, especially if I've never seen it before, it just, it brings me back to a time and I'm like, oh, there's Uncle Michael. There's, it's like goldmine to me. But then I also, when I watch something, I'm, I also see all the missed opportunities. I can't just enjoy something. As um, you guys had said before, you know, 
I walked away liking it a lot, but I also saw a couple of missed opportunities and a couple of things that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Describing the Jacksons as as a boy band that's kind of on its way out when Destiny album was highly successful, that was like a slap in the face to my family. You don't have to belittle the Jacksons or the Jackson 5 to make Michael shine. He shines twice as bright, three times as bright already to anyone. I see things like that and it kind of saddens me because the Destiny's album came and then Off the Wall came off of that and and then um, Triumph came. There's a progression in there of Michael's growth, but also Michael, you know, shining in that. But you don't have to dim the brothers to do that. And, And that's one of the things that that and then also with the Victory Tour and there's a lot of things I see as a family member and I grew up and I watched it and just to belittle the brothers as if like, yes, Michael could have went on tour and sold out those places without the brothers, 100%. Thriller was on top of the world. And yes, he did do it, you know, um, because of family. But to make it seem like it was all torture when I have personal experiences of my uncle reminiscing about the Victory Tour, you know, and it just, it comes across like it was a favor that he hated to do. And that's not the truth. There's a lot of stuff I loved about the documentary. And there's a lot of stuff I was like, you know, especially when it came to the brothers or the Jackson 5 or the Jacksons, I was like, um, yeah, that's not, you know, that's not how I remember it. Yeah, I really feel you on that, Taj. And I think it's so unfortunate that that narrative continues to play out. And you're so right. I mean, like, why do we it's like this, there's this there is this desire to create this melodramatic narrative to show Michael triumphing. And why can't it be the whole family triumphing and creating this amazing launch pad too for Michael that he would go off and do incredible things too. But it came it came from the Jackson family, right? And the fact that that keeps getting wiped out of the picture is um, really unfortunate. Yeah, I think the narrative for them is that all the family did was hold them back. In reality, it was a launching pad and, mm-hmm. you know, they held each other up. And from that, he was able to soar even higher. I think that's kind of the narrative that I just don't like. It's like, oh, you know, he would have been famous anyway. He would have been this anyway. And it's like, you don't know that, first of all. And and I always say, you know, if my grandpa didn't have that guitar, you know, there would be no Jackson 5 anyway. And if my dad didn't break that string playing that guitar, there would be no Jackson 5 anyway. And if all of them weren't so talented as brothers and such a phenomenon, there'd be no Jackson 5 and there would be no Michael Jackson from that. Because as we know, and I'm being very careful how I say this, but Michael joined the group. You know, he was the younger brother that wanted to do what the older brothers did. And if the other older brothers didn't do that, then the younger brother wouldn't have wanted to do that. And I know the hierarchy of brothers and family, and I know what that's like to inspire someone. Well, there's even more layers to it. You know, I mean, for example, Michael comes to the Wiz through Barry Gordy, and it's through the Wiz that he then begins working with Quincy even if you took the view that he might have succeeded in his own right later in life without the foundation of the Jackson 5 it's almost for certain that he wouldn't have ended up meeting and working with Quincy and then we wouldn't have got off the wall 
and we wouldn't have got Thriller, and so on. So everything leads on to the next step. I think what struck me about the documentary is that this is a problem that was picked up on by the fans after the work-in-progress screenings. There was a lot of criticism within the fan community about the fact that no Jackson family members had been interviewed for the documentary and about the attitude that the documentary seemed to take towards the family. It was one of many criticisms which were made about the documentary. They had a year to fix this all and they didn't do it. I watched it this time last week, the day it was released. You were hoping that you would switch it on and they would have fixed all of the things that had been identified by the fans as being problematic. If anything, they had somehow managed to make it worse. I mean, the only change that I was able to identify was that in the original version of the documentary that I saw in the cinema in London last year, there was quite a long montage of footage from the victory tour of Michael doing various dance moves during the Billie Jean breakdown and that had all been chopped out and that was the only discernible change I didn't notice any changes other than that and you're sort of going well how <laughs> what was the point of these uh, work in progress screenings I mean the film remains a complete and utter dog's dinner I mean it's just it has no structure and no story whatsoever it's almost like a bunch of random clips that have just been sort of chopped up and then someone's put them in a machine that randomly assembles them like a lottery machine or something. It's almost like a scrapbook, albeit probably with a silent S. But um, it's like, a, it's like, a, it's like it has no structure whatsoever. It just sort of starts and it's just this montage of clips and then an hour later... You're still watching this montage of clips. It jumps forward to something and then it jumps backwards to something. There's no chronological structure to it. It doesn't have a stated aim or central theme or anything. For one song, for some reason, you get like a 10-minute explanation of how they conceived the song from start to finish. And then another song, they just go, oh yeah, Human Nature was good. Anyway... It's just like, what the fuck is going on with this thing? It has no structure at all. Anyway, I just thought it was crap. Hopefully a lot of people watch it. If it um, inspires some people to seek out the original material, then great. But, I mean, if I was a non-fan tuning into this, I would just be like, what? I don't think I would have got through the first 20 minutes because it's just, it just it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, there's definitely like, I mean, you talk about that victory tour stuff being taken out. I mean, there's definitely some other things they could have cut before that, like the Polo G stuff, even the the TikTok and the BTS stuff. I mean, sure, it doesn't go for ages. It might only go for like, I don't know, in four or five minutes or something, even a bit less than that. But it's kind of like, why, why is, you know, there's things that could have been put in there instead. Yeah, I agree. The biggest flaw for the documentary is probably that it doesn't attempt to tell the story of Thriller's creation really it does focus on the impact more so than how it was created, whereas other music documentaries about albums, you know, focus on the story of the album. Um, you know, key beats in the story, like how Quincy Jones had a mission to save the industry, what Bruce Wadian brought to the table, the listening, you know, the famous story of the listening session and the audio being crunched together and it sounding terrible. All of that stuff was just not there. 
you know, got to talk about the highlights too. There were some really good things. Stephen Ivory's analysis of Motown 25 was great. The Girl Is Mine <laughs> section. I don't really like The Girl Is Mine that much. It's not my favorite Michael Jackson song. But watching that that footage of him singing it with that passion in the studio, like, <clears throat> wow. I mean, that was incredible. The Victory Tour footage looks amazing. Just absolutely mm-hmm. pristine, beautiful quality. I cannot wait for that to be released one day. And I guess I've just got the same feeling, though, after the Off the Wall and the Bad documentaries by Spike Lee, very, very similar. They're just full of talking heads about, you know, just discussing how awesome Michael is. They kind of feel like ads in a way or like commercials. It's just constant people saying, Michael's amazing, Michael's amazing, Michael's amazing. We, we know that. that I mean... The stuff that's amazing me in it is not what they're saying, but the footage of him doing his thing. And when I said earlier that I don't really feel like I want to watch it again is because all I would be watching it for are these little drops of, you know, Michael's clips all the way through it. That's all I would be watching it for. And I tried to watch it again a couple of nights ago, but it was it was kind of a frustrating experience having to sit through Will I Am again or having to sit through somebody else again when I'm just sitting there waiting for, can I just see the victory tour footage again? So I'm like fast forwarding it to get all those little bits. I feel like the big missed opportunity here is that the estate isn't combining these documentary releases with tour releases. Why didn't we get Triumph after the Off to the Wall documentary? Why isn't the victory tour out in 4K right now? Because the natural next step people want to take after watching this is going to watch the tour, I think. But you can't. Yeah, as soon as I saw that victory tour footage, my jaw just dropped to the floor and I just, all I could think of the rest of the film was, that's what I want to be seeing Mm. right now, (laughs) is that incredible footage. I've seen it on the fan community in general, all over social media, the victory tour footage and just seeing parts of it was probably one of the biggest highlights of Thriller 40 and me growing up watching the victory tour and that was like the heyday for me. It was great to see that and and hear that. And I think it needs to be shouted louder because it is. It was such a triumphant tour. I know there's the triumph tour. But I'm just saying, (laughs) (laughs) as I said that, I'm like, oh, that's confusing. Such a victory. It was such a victory. I do want to see that footage too. Like, that's the thing. As someone that's family but also a fan, I want to see that footage. I want to remember it. I want to revisit it. And it's like, we want it. We want it. Well, I think that goes perfectly Taj to this idea of like thinking about what is the purpose of this documentary, right? And thinking about how it does kind of feel like an ad, right? And like the TikTok thing and all that. And I understand, I I was trying to think about it from a mainstream perspective. And I'm like, well, you know, somebody who's a super casual fan or just discovering Michael or maybe just not even a fan but stumbles across this film, I can see their motivation to like put in your face over and over Michael's still relevant. He's still super important. He's, you know, look, a whole new generation is just discovering him through TikTok, et cetera, et cetera. I try to remember that. But but it's like, why do we all love Michael and Taj and your father and his brothers too? Like, it's because of the genius things they did. And the best way to capture that is to show us the videos of it, right? That victory footage, (laughs) that is all you have to do. Put that in the world and we will remember and rediscover and re-experience how incredible and magical it all was. I mean, 
it's all there. You don't need to recreate ads around, no offense to BTS, but BTS and TikTok, um, just put the material out there. Keep it fresh. Keep it, keep it in, in restored quality. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I, the Ed Sullivan show um, is the best example when Michael sings Who's Loving You mm-hmm. of when anyone says Michael Jackson is not a singer. That's exhibit A right there. That's the audition tape of Shut Up. You know, you can't watch that and say Michael Jackson can't sing. It's ridiculous anyway, but after hearing that, it's just obvious. And so I am a firm believer of put the footage out, it'll speak for itself. I think one of the things that they were trying to do, which is always the pitfall, and and this is what I've been running up against with my docuseries, is sometimes there's these big corporations and it's a committee and it's one of those things of like, hey, this is what sells. We need famous people in it because we have to sell to this country and this country and this and that. And you lose all the heart. My whole thing with my docuseries is it's the heart that matters. It's the longevity. It's the legend aspect of it. It's not, is he current now? Is, is he popular now? Who's current now? Let's put them in. Michael's forever. The Jackson Five is forever. Like that's the thing for me. I can tell. Like it was done to show he's still relevant and he's still important. And this album is a masterpiece. And yes, it is. But at the same time, the a- album's legendary. And so it could have been done with that status of it in terms of all the things that they did to make it a legendary album. As much as I did enjoy Thriller Forty because it showed footage and things like that of Michael at his peak and what was his greatest achievement, the, you know, the biggest selling album of all time. There was still a part of me that came away from the documentary thinking, what was the aim of this documentary? Not what was the point, because that sounds kind of d- dismissive, but what was the aim? Just commemorating the fact that it's been 40 years. Like we said earlier, there was no cohesive storyline to it. Did we really learn anything new other than what a like is on TikTok? being mansplained by the director of TikTok, you know, <laughs> even though it got over a million or however million likes, uh, we still don't know what a like is. Thanks, mate. But for the, the fans, there's, you know, minute little details like Michael arriving for the Grammy Awards to receive all of the awards for Thriller, but Don't Stop to Get Enough is playing in the background, like from off the wall, so not relevant to Thriller. And as Jamin said earlier, we didn't hear about how Bruce Wadeen and Quincy Jones went in and and their aim was to save the record industry. So really, what was the aim of this documentary? Was it just a mishmash of clips around the Thriller era? Did we really learn anything new other than, you know, seeing the uh, in-session footage of Michael and Paul McCartney recording The Girl Is Mine? That's the frustration for me, is that there is so much from that era, which we're pretty sure that they've got, but we still don't know about. I agree with you, but my question to you would be, was it made for the fans? Probably not. I think that's the thing. Or was it made to capture a new audience? Now, I always think about the fans. I think that should be always the first priority in anything that is Michael Jackson, because that's the first thing he thought of. But we are in a new world where it's about, can we capture a new audience and, and a new generation? This is what the young ones are, are watching, or this is what the young ones are doing. So let's throw in TikTok. 
that's why when I watched it, I was like, okay, it's a different strategy that they're doing. They're trying to capture this as opposed to servicing their base. And I'm not saying one's right or wrong, but that's definitely what they tried to do. I agree. And and as a sort of counter to your counter, <laughs> the, <laughs> and, and I do agree with you. I'm not trying to argue with here, Taj. I, I, I totally oh, I, agree with you. I, I'm on your page, but I'm, yeah. just, I'm trying to play devil's advocate. Here. Yeah, likewise. And my devil's advocate to your first devil's advocate would be that it's, <laughs> it's the, the original stories that made some people become so intrigued with Thriller and that era. So why would those same stories and the magic of those stories, you know, saving the record industry and, and, you know, Michael coming with a fire in his belly, why would they still not appeal to a newer audience today? Those same stories of how the magic was captured in the first place. Okay, add some TikTok in there if you really want, but <laughs> those same stories are, are surely going to appeal to, to new fans. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. I think it's like... <laughs> They've got the low-hanging fruit. It's actually really easy to sit a camera in front of somebody and say, like, get Will I Am to say how awesome it is. That's not hard. Like, all he has to say is, this is a great song. It inspired me. Like, that's it. Mm. It's hard to capture a, a story from Matt Forger about the creation of this certain song and then put it together like a like a puzzle next to another story from Quincy Jones next to a reflection from Brooke Shields or, or whatever. That's a really hard thing to do. There are people in the community that have accomplished that. Marcos's documentary accomplishes that. Damien Shields's amazing Genesis of Thriller accomplishes that. But I feel like what this documentary does achieve, if anything, is like a I don't want to call it like low budget or anything like that, but it's kind of like that sort of throwaway Saturday afternoon documentary you might put on if you go onto Netflix or Paramount Plus or anything and you're just looking for something casual to put on. And mm. I think a lot of people are going to put this on. Paramount Plus is an, a, like the most up-and-coming streaming service there is. There's going to be a lot of casual uh, viewers that are going to put this on and they're going to be they are going to be captured by the footage, by the stories, especially those maybe younger folks who haven't really got a knowledge of the story. But to me, the thing that's missing is it's like a it's like a gateway into something more. So you watch this and then you go, all right, so now I've seen that. Now I actually want to see the footage. The stuff that's meant to be there for the fans is not there. That's the bit that's missing. So I'm actually fine with the estate doing projects like this that are targeted more at the mainstream audience who don't know much about Michael Jackson. I'm fine with that. But back it up with something that they can then go to later on that's made for the fans, that's got a lot more depth. They're not doing that bit. Got it. Yeah, and it would be so nice if they would follow up with like the really nice deluxe box set that fans can buy right after seeing the documentary meant for a mainstream audience. Like, why do, why is that not a thing? For me, I did think the first half or even two thirds was pretty frantic and hopping around, as you guys have pointed out already. But there was one moment that actually worked for me when we finally do get to the song Thriller and we have, uh, I believe it's Anthony Martinelli, who's wearing his like Sinclavia shirt, which is really awesome, talking about the opening of Thriller and then going into the Thriller song. I thought finally there, the documentary actually like took a breath and like 
went into something, anything, right, a little bit more in depth. And all of a sudden, after not feeling emotionally engaged in the whole film to that point, I suddenly felt, oh, we're here actually talking about the artistry. We're taking our time. We're exploring it a bit. Even if it's nothing new, at least we're getting to enjoy all this amazing stuff Michael did. And I felt much more connected through that last section. So that worked for me a bit better. I realized the whole film can't do that because then it would be like a four-hour film. In that moment, I thought, oh, there is a way for me to actually enjoy this <laughs> instead of jumping all over the place. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, it's isn't it? It's it's got to be easy to capture those kind of random stories. They're not even relevant to actually direct something like this. Well, Nelson himself would have had to have had a very deep knowledge about the story of the creation of the album. Exactly. He didn't. And he didn't. Well, I I would say he, you have to have a certain passion for the story. And I think that's where the frustration. Yeah. The last thing that I'll say is I was watching, I think it was the end credits or the, you know, the scroll. And they talk about this is it. And they mention that it's a concert film. As someone that's been on Twitter or whatever it's called now, X and Facebook and constantly fighting for that and calling it a documentary. It's not a concert film because there's no concert. And then they put it in there. And I'm like, oh, gosh, you know. So it was kind of frustrating in my sense because people are going to point to that aspect of it. That was something that I noticed as well. I'm like, oh, my gosh, here I am trying to tell everyone that this is it is the highest grossing documentary of all time. It's not a concert film. And they put it in Thriller 40th as a concert film. Yeah. Incorrect. Well, it is the state, a state continuing to reinforce the incorrect narrative, just like they're doing with the brothers as well. My final thing, just while we mentioned the estate as well, is that uh, the other thing I noticed through the documentary is that there were several occasions where John Branca came on screen and effectively told a story of how he saved the day. Mm. I'll leave it at that. Yes. <laughs> he likes to do that. He likes to do that. And he yeah. likes his TikTok as well. And he likes <laughs> <laughs> There was a reason the, t- the president of TikTok or CEO of TikTok yeah, was But nothing to do with Michael's magic and his singing and dancing and music ability. John Branca saved the day. Let's not forget that. <laughs> but they did, like, they did have some good ingredients, didn't they? It's just a shame that it didn't turn out like we really wanted, like having Brooke Shields, you know, having all these people connected to Michael. They, there were some fairly, there were people that were fairly close to Michael through this period. It's a real shame the family wasn't in there. That's that's just like, you know, indefensible really. And then, of course, Quincy, his, his voice is so absent in it as well. He probably didn't want to participate. I know he doesn't see eye to eye with the estate from memory. I mean, I've only seen it that once. So from memory, they didn't use any archival footage of Quincy talking directly about the creation of the songs. And a lot of that stuff, Sony's already released audio of him talking about the songs on the 2001 special edition of Thriller. So I think it's a bit of a missed opportunity too that some voices were not included that were central to it all. Absolutely, but still very enjoyable and it's definitely worth a watch. Yeah. I don't know if you guys picked it up, but did you notice there was some footage from the Beat It short film that looked really interesting? Like it was almost like it wasn't making of footage. It was like outtakes or something from the film that looked like it might have been a part of a bigger story that we hadn't seen yet. Is that the Michael knocking on the window and like opening the door? Peering in and like there's 
obviously bits from Beat It that we haven't seen, maybe like a longer version. Yeah, it looks like um, maybe the more expanded story was more of an explanation of how Michael ends up in the warehouse in the middle of the fight. And he shows up at the cafe and there's nobody there. It's like he goes there to meet his gang friends and they're not there. And then he goes looking for them and finds them in the warehouse, maybe, would be my reading of it. Yeah, that was super interesting. So just as a tiny side note there, ask, with as much as Vincent Patterson is featured in those Beat It clips, how is he not a talking head in the documentary? That's a disgrace. He's all over the place there. Absolutely. ridiculous. Just remembering back to the interview we did with Vincent, didn't he talk about amazing stories like they're they're like when they were filming in the warehouse and then there was some kind of gang fight going on and then he looked up and there was like blood dripping down on him or something like like there's such detail that that could have been in this documentary yeah uh speaking of vincent patterson vincent's book is has come out this year widely available pick up a copy it's great (laughs) yeah he's amazing Um, so yeah that's awesome yeah Actually, I kept thinking too, speaking one one last thing on him is the last time he came to Brad Sunberg's event, Taj, yes. you were there, I believe. He I just remember so seeing the kind of restored beat it footage, I just thought Vincent's striped shirt was like so in my face and like <laughs> visible in all those shots. And I bring up Brad's event because as I recall, Vincent brought that shirt. He still has it. It's like the size of a tea towel. It's so tiny. And <laughs> And I just thought, I don't know, that shirt is like seared into my memory. And I'm just thinking, man, why is like Vincent not on there showing his little shirt? Like, it's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> that was great, though. And yeah, Vincent has so many good yeah. stories. Oh, my gosh. We got to have him back, actually. Yes. <laughs> oh, and actually, I meant to mention, so my husband, who I think probably several of us in this group have, you know, partners who kind of endure our fandom <laughs> and you know god bless my husband he he comes to all the events with me and he it's great and he enjoys it it's not he he enjoys michael jackson maybe just not quite to the level that, that i do but he actually watched it with me and i have to say he genuinely enjoyed it watched the entire thing was commenting several times like oh man i forgot i remember that in the news like afterwards said i just had forgotten about that whole et thing so for him it was kind of interesting watching his reaction to it, which was overall quite positive and triggered a lot of those, I suppose, kind of nostalgia moments of the real legacy of this album and this whole kind of era around Thriller. So again, there's something to be said for that from a very, very mainstream perspective. And I think looking at, Jamin, you've kind of pointed out previously too, that looking at the different slices, we really have kind of built this amazing collection at this point of different types of documentaries looking at different aspects of thriller. So I think as fans, we're actually quite lucky that we have Marcos's project and Damien's project. Um, to, when you put them all together, we can get this more comprehensive look at the the history of thriller. But yeah, this one piece, probably not for the mega fans. <laughs> I guess we can't really let it go unsaid either that the director, Nelson George, has a bit of a checkered past regarding comments on Michael Jackson. 
just to give our audience a bit of an idea of some of the things he said, five days after Michael's 2005 acquittal, he wrote a piece for The Guardian in which he said, and I'm going to quote here, his fascination with young boys, young white boys, is still disquieting. The details of his personal life unearthed during the trial will shadow him for the rest of his life. I had emotionally disconnected from Michael over the years as his skin tone lightened and his public persona darkened. None of his explanations for how he grew lighter have been very convincing. So that's one of the comments he made. The second one he made after Michael passed away when Andrea Chalupa wrote an article in the Huffington Post that embeds a pretty lengthy statement from Nelson George uh, that he gave her on reflection of Michael. And I'll just Just read a small excerpt of that one as well. At the time of his passing, he was a deformed, corrupt, and far removed from the genius displayed in creating his mass media empire. It's hilarious how one-sided much of the immediate commentary about the man has been. Sinner or saint? More apt is artist and sinner. People want to simplify a truly complex life. We have to be sophisticated enough to acknowledge that greatness and a touch of evil dwelled in the man. The meaning of Michael Jackson's life as a black man, a sexual being, a abused and abusing adult. Now, those those comments, I mean, I'm I'm sure those people listening will be a bit taken aback by those as as I was when I first read them. And our natural response was we wanted to kind of put those comments to Nelson. Now that he's made a sanctioned documentary for the Michael Jackson estate, we wanted to put those comments back to him to get sort of, uh, I guess, you know, his thoughts on what he was thinking at the time and whether he still stands by those. So we invited him on the MJ cast and for some weeks he was agreeing to come on uh, until he recently declined, saying that Thriller 40 was doing so well that it didn't need any promotion. Had he come on, we definitely would have put those comments to him to try and understand why he would say those things and whether he still believes them. I still have ongoing concerns as to why the estate are partnering with people like Nelson George and also in the case of the musical with, with Lynn Nottage, who have both publicly entertained the idea that, that Michael might be a liar and a child sex abuser. So I, I know that's some pretty heavy stuff there, guys. I just felt like it probably wasn't right for us to be talking about his documentary in a generally positive way without also highlighting for the audience that he has, um, to my knowledge, not, not walked back those comments that he's made earlier on. I mean, for me in general... I guess the question is, how do these people keep getting rewarded for their comments? I would have been very curious just to see if he still believed that, because I'm always up for someone being redeemed or learning about the truth. And, you know, they're having, you know, somewhat an ignorant past because of what they heard in the media or, or, or lies they heard. And now they've come and they've, they've done the homework and they're like, oh, OK, I was wrong. I'm all for that, but you know, it doesn't seem like we heard that. I didn't hear it and I was listening. And that kind of, you know, infuriates me at points because then you have people that are very much on those front lines battling for Michael, battling for the legacy because they know the truth and they get constantly ignored. I agree. It in with what Taj says about it being infuriating. And the reason um on my part that I find infuriating is that the one phrase that seemed to be repeated ad nauseum in the wake of leaving Neverland was the phrase willful blindness. And I think that Nelson George's comments 
ring of willful blindness back in 2005 or whenever he wrote that first article and, you know, the more recent one as well. The facts are out there and they are easy to find to disprove the comments that Nelson George has made. So I would really, really like to see him address those comments and at least try to correct them. Yeah, absolutely. They're not they're not generalized comments. They're very pointed, specific attacks on Michael. He's literally calling Michael Jackson a liar uh, and saying that Michael intentionally lightened his skin rather than had vitiligo. There's evidence that Michael did not have inappropriate relationships with young boys, yet he's saying that Michael Jackson was an abusing adult. These are incredibly specific and pointed attacks and it just it's just beyond me how the michael jackson estate would want to partner with him after those comments have been made i mean surely they'd be unaware like (laughs) they mustn't have done their research at the time surely yeah i i just want to add to taj you made a a comment about how you know people's thoughts and opinions can evolve and i personally am of the feeling that I am always willing to reassess someone or forgive someone for, you know, I think we're in an age, especially with social media, where all of us in a certain context have probably made some stupid comment about something or other 12 years ago that, you know, is like somebody's keeping some screenshot of, right? It's, but... And there may be fans who say we should move on. He's clearly shown he's a fan or whatever. But these types of comments he has made are at such a level. Like you say, Jamin, they are so direct. I mean, how can we let this slide? And to see the entire fan community basically ignoring this stuff now that the documentary has officially come out is troubling. Yes, I agree that I think most of the blame does come down to the estate and how they could entrust someone who's made comments like this with this type of project. But really, as a fan community, we don't want to let this completely slide. I think it's interesting to compare it to Lynn Nottage, who of course has also said some iffy things. Um, What I think is interesting about everyone involved with MJ the musical is I feel like they have been told very specifically by the estate to shut up about anything regarding the allegations so that they don't get themselves in any hot water with making any kind of comment negative or positive and just to ignore that. So there's that. I don't know. But with Nelson George, it's, you know, these things cannot be ignored. And they really are very, very damning statements that I just, I'm astounded have not been addressed. So it's a tricky space too. Like we want to support this documentary. We have, as fans, want it to do well. We want it to help Michael Jackson's legacy, but we also just can't, we can't let this fade into the, into the distance. We really can't. In general for me, I just, I, I remember, and it's for every journalist that uses their pen basically as a weapon to try and destroy Michael's legacy, I feel like you shouldn't be rewarded. And if you've come and you've realized the truth, then you should be screaming that out loud. You should use that same pen to vindicate him. And that is where I get frustrated is that I, along with all you guys, all the fans had to sit there on the battlefield, basically, 
while journalist after journalist, hit piece after hit piece came out. And these journalists did use their pen, their typewriter, whatever you want to say, their computer as a weapon to try and destroy Michael's legacy. So it's always like the bad people get rewarded. And Thriller in general is not just a album. It's the greatest album of all time, the biggest selling album of all time. I mean, greatest is perspective, I guess, because some MJ fans will argue other albums, me included. Biggest album of all time is not up for dispute. And I think that's the hardest thing is that that's a once in a lifetime opportunity for someone. And to give it to someone that hasn't cleared up whether or not he thinks Michael Jackson's innocent or guilty, the ball was dropped in that. Yeah, I love those thoughts. Couldn't agree more. Michael even wrote in one of his songs, With Your Pen, You Torture Men. It's you know a pretty noticeable line in one of his songs. So I think it's pretty appropriate for Nelson George right here. Well, I also think because, you know, I was around when my uncle would read certain articles and it would affect him, not only for that day, but for days. And yes, of course, he tried to maintain this rhino skin that he would always talk about, rhinoceros skin. I got rhino skin, but it hurt him. It hurt. It would hurt anyone for, for people to take cheap shots at you like that. And so for me, it's like there's the trying to forgive side of it. And I'm, as I said, if someone really does realize that they were wrong and they are vocal about it, then I am very much willing. I'm not one of those people that's like, hey, you said something 20 years ago and I don't care if you're sorry now, you're still going to you know, pay for that. I'm not one of those people. And, but at the same time, you better scream as loud as you were screaming back then. Well, Taj, this is a part of Michael that we haven't really learned about much or explored is that that inside story, I guess, of how he did cope with those kind of comments. So thank God he he didn't have to deal with social media. Can you imagine? He wasn't around for like the height of Twitter, which is, you know, probably um, that would have been just terrible, I think. But just looking back at, you know, him learning about maybe some big stories through newspapers or on TV or things like that. How did he deal with that? How did he cope with it? Was he the kind of person who was just like quietly upset about it or was he vocally upset? Um, I think it all depended. I think Terrell had the best story. Um, I don't know if you've heard the story when we were watching Three Kings with him at Neverland. And there's a scene in Three Kings where um, I guess there's a, a torture scene or one of the, the guys is uh, trying to torture um, Mark Wahlberg, I think it is. The torture guy is saying, you know, making jokes about Michael, like, why is he not want to be black and all this stuff? And, and it's, I remember, and Terrell, you know, said it perfectly. He, you know, my uncle walked out of the room, you know, crying basically. And it felt dirty. Like it honestly, for me, it's such a cheap shot and it feels dirty because these people that had to go from, someone writing that on the script to someone acting that out to someone editing that to someone then color correcting it. And then to someone, you know, projecting it on a screen, that's a lot of hands that it had to go through to not care about someone's feelings. And it's not a joke. That's the, they'll say, Oh, it was a joke. You know, there's certain things that are jokes where you can laugh with it. And there's other things where people are laughing at you. And that's a big distinction that people need to understand. Yeah, to that point, Taj, I think the levels and layers of complicity are staggering and really troubling. 
Maybe, though, there's a tiny glimmer of hope in that for fans. And that is, if we all remain engaged and don't let things like this just fall into the background and keep bringing them up and keep looking for answers, maybe all of us, those little links in the chain, become less complicit and get to the real answers and and find some solutions down the road, if we can all keep working towards that and not just be, you know, lazy fans. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I know there are bigger things at work here that we're talking about too, but uh, I do think we need to all keep asking these questions for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I'm just at the point and it's not old age, even though I did turn 50 <laughs> this year. It's just at the point of, you know, people should be, you know, responsible for their actions in, in certain things. And look, I'm the first person, if I make a mistake, I'll say I'll, I made a mistake. You know, it's like, I feel like people deserve that. People deserve authenticity. It's just, for me, it's just, it's painful to see that we still have these people. I'm being a little harsh and I, and, and I apologize if it sounds really spiteful it's it's not i'm just tired i'm tired of my family being attacked i'm tired of my family being used as punching bags i'm tired of a lot of stuff i might sound angry but it's more of just i'm more disappointed well it makes a lot of sense taj and we feel for you and you know we've said it before but say it again it just it really means so much to have your voice and the kind of representative Jackson family voice to remind us of these things um, yeah. because they get forgotten too often. And the truth is going to have the final say when your docuseries comes out. True. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's, that's the idea of it because I think there's a lot of people that don't understand really what my uncle went through, really how much it affected him, really how much things hurt him. He put on a, a strong public persona, but I think people you know, it's time for people to understand what he went through. Yeah. Uh, So moving on from the Thriller 40 documentary, we'll jump over to Marcos Cabata, who we've talked about quite a bit. And he has recently posted on Twitter slash X some more detail about why he has found releasing his incredible film, Sonic Fantasy, which all mega fans should absolutely try to watch problematic. And so um, I wanted to just read a couple, I won't read the whole thing, but you'll see the thread here linked in our show notes. But Marcos has posted that I'll just excerpt a few lines here that following the release of Thriller 40, many people have asked me about the release of Sonic Fantasy on streaming services. After a year touring film festivals, he says that now really should be the time that it should be making it onto a streaming platform. But, quote, this production had two powerful enemies from the first moment and in all phases of the creation of this film. They raised problems so that the project was not created or canceled. And although the documentary is educational, positive, and elegant with everyone, these people put their economic considerations above any human or artistic value. It goes on, but essentially a pretty damning post about some... Uh, powers that be who essentially have blocked his film from 
making it onto major streaming platforms, which is for all the reasons we've just discussed, is truly, truly a shame. Let's talk about this. Thoughts? Who would like to chime in first? Well, I think we can sort of guess who some of those people are. Like he, he discusses two people. I'm assuming that one of them is Quincy because when we did our Marcos Kubota Sonic Fantasy special, he talked at length about there being some tension between, you know, his camp and, and Quincy's camp and, and how, you know, the documentary wasn't able to become what he wanted it to become. I think he even said that he recorded an interview with Quincy that was meant to make it in there that didn't. So I'm assuming that he's one of the people. I don't know who the other person would be. My guess would be in the last page of that tweet, he says, this is all a theory. I have no proof of it, but it's not normal that Netflix, Apple, Amazon, or Disney have not shown interest in its distribution. Given what we know about uh, Disney, and obviously they've removed the, the Michael episode of The Simpsons from stream platforms, there's someone at Disney whose name I can't remember that, uh, for whatever reason, doesn't want anything to do with Michael Jackson. So that would be my theory as to, to who that person is. But again, I'm also guessing. Is he actually saying that the film in its current form is being blocked? Or is it more complicated than that? Is he saying the refusal of rights to use the music has catastrophically damaged the film, which would prevent it from making it onto streamers because i do think that i mean the way i've described it before is it's a bit like making a 90 minute documentary about the mona lisa but then after you've made it they say there's just one problem here you can't actually show the mona lisa on screen so you've got a whole documentary about the making of the thriller album but with no thriller music in it that is a hard sell if you're trying to get it onto a streamer i think i am unclear what the root cause of the problem is i'm unclear whether he's saying that he thinks that the film in its current form should be on streaming services or whether he's saying the kind of sabotage of the film has made it unsellable to streamers i mean i think it's just such a terrible terrible shame if you were to take the bones of marcos's documentary and then fill it with the music and the archive that appears in the estates documentary it would have been absolutely phenomenal. He has done the right thing in terms of storytelling and structure, but has been denied access to all of the archive. The estate has just taken all of the archive and put it into a blender with absolutely no narrative structure or storytelling whatsoever. It, you've got two projects which, had they been combined, would have been unstoppable, but they're both flawed. Uh, there's possibly an element of both there, Charlie, because didn't Marcos say when he was with us that he has a version with all of the music on? It's just the rights to secure that. But what I take from his tweet is it's the actual distribution of the movie, regardless of which version of it, with or without Michael's music on it. The distribution is not normally a problem. He usually goes somewhere and, and sees his movies on without even knowing because someone else handles the, the distribution and getting it onto a streaming platform. But he says that even that isn't getting any traction at the moment. Yeah, he does write, everything related to distribution is not handled by me personally, so it seems pretty focused on just the distribution aspect. But it's a good question, Charlie. I, I... Well, you see, I just don't find it surprising. I don't find it surprising that streamers would say, why would we buy a thriller documentary with no thriller in it? So it, it seems like the problem is not really with the distribution, because the people that you would be marketing it to 
are making quite a sensible decision. <laughs> so if the problem is with the refusal by the estate or whoever it is to let him use the music in the first place, I think that if that was fixed, it would be fine. I'm not so sure. I, I feel like there's some serious shit that ends up on streaming services, Charlie. I, I was about to say that about too. Pyramids being built by aliens is freaking like. I don't feel like that's the big stopper. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna not say it like you just said it, but I was gonna say that basically, it surprises me as well because when I saw it, it kind of was also Bruce's story, and that was kind of the heart of it. I learned a lot about Bruce as someone as a kid that I would see around a lot, but didn't know anything about him and how important he was to my uncle's legacy. And that third ingredient to the masterpiece that we call Thriller, a third important ingredient. I was very surprised. I wasn't in certain things because I live in this world and I know all the politics and everything that goes around. That's one of the reasons why I tread the way I do. That's one of the reasons why things take longer than they do is because I'm in that landmine world and people that aren't, I don't say used to it, but they, they, they would assume that red is red and blue is blue. And I'm like, oh, there's so many different colors and so many ways to look at things because I've lived it. I think the frustration, he, he's rightfully should feel that frustration because the documentary is incredible. I've seen such crap on these streaming services and things get picked up about Michael's animals and stuff like that. It's like, so they will show anything, Michael. So when it comes down to about the biggest selling album of all time and they are not going to take a chance on that and, and distribute it at all. Now, I don't even know what he's asking, but I'm sure it's not even about that aspect of it. They just probably blocked it completely. And I'm just making speculation, but it wouldn't surprise me. Tash, have you had any dialogue with Marcos at all? Like, I mean, obviously Marcos is a, a very well-renowned, award-winning documentary filmmaker. Have you spoken to him much at all about your own project and, and that kind of thing or? Um, yes, I have. Uh, the priority of my project, my docuseries, was to kind of enlist the help or, or wisdom of people that have done it before, but also kind of build a, a super team of conscious people that not only have that heart and soul of caring about Michael and his legacy, but also have a different perspective than I do. I grew up watching my uncle. I grew up inside the bubble. So seeing other people do something, whether it's a documentary or it's an article, it's like very important for me to connect with them and kind of pick their brain and see how they came across and how they figured that out. So yes, Marcos came over to my place. Don't quote me on the time. It was this year, obviously. He has an amazing passion for the project, rightfully so. I've known about the project before the project was the project because he had shown me his Darth Vader one with uh, David Prowse. Where Terrell was in the documentary, he actually asked me to be in the documentary and I referred Terrell to it. I said, if you want someone to talk about the music of Michael Jackson, Terrell's the one that should talk about it, not me. And so that's why Terrell's in it. So is Marcos connected with you more like in an advisory way or is he like on your team? 
I wouldn't say team and I wouldn't say advisor. I'd say friend, yeah, <laughs> consultant, because in all honesty, with the advisory aspect of it, I have a clear cut vision in that way. Sure. But at the same point, I do have friends that I want to be able to tell me, why don't you do this? Or why don't you try this? I'm also stubborn in terms of the advisory aspect of it because I know with my uncle, he was that way with Thriller. No one could advise him to do things the way he wanted to do it. He had that vision, that clear vision. Obviously, people could kind of influence him one way or the other to try this or try that. But at the same time, he knew his trajectory and where he wanted to go. I would say more of that. And he's offered advice whenever I needed it. When I do need it, or if if I do need it, I will call him upon it just like I do anyone else. Great. Yeah. So this really is a shame with Marcos. And just to kind of, I guess, make a final comment there, you know, I think Marcos's project too is so interesting because not only does it satisfy the kind of deep dive fans, but I actually do think it really works for the more casual fans as well, because it does tell such a strong story and it adds a new element to this classic history that we all think we know it adds depth to it so Marcos, we really feel for you i'm so sorry you're an amazingly talented filmmaker and it's a terrible shame but do know that he also mentioned on his tweet that he is planning to release a limited edition dvd and blu-ray at some point so at least hopefully we can buy it even if it is not on a streaming platform so please do watch for news of about that. Uh, And then moving on to the next news item, an interesting thing that's actually just happened as we've been recording today on December 9th, a collection of unseen Michael Jackson thriller album cover photos as Polaroids have been auctioned literally today while we've been talking, as well as the camera which was used to take the thriller album cover photos. And so those, of course, were all taken by Dick Zimmerman, who we've had on the show. If you have not listened to that episode, go back and check it out. It's thrilling. A lot of it takes place in a car on the way to a party. Um, and then he goes back to the party because he left his cigar holder there or something. <laughs> it's amazing. It's a really good one. But um, in any case, yes, he's auctioned off these Polaroids. And I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen the Polaroids already on social media. But it's been pretty interesting to watch the auction play out today. It's with an auction house based in Florida Blackwell Auctions. And these were the Polaroids taken by Dick Zimmerman. And all they come with a letter of authenticity. And also they release all copyrights. I'd love to chat about what that, you know, really means. Because obviously, you can't go take making royalties off them from like the album or anything. But before we dive into that, I just did want to comment on how the auction actually played out. I've been kind of watching it today and it looks like it's closed. So and everything has sold. So the Polaroids, the iconic what we think of as the thriller cover itself sold for $30,000 US and the rest sold in a range. It looks like they all sold for $17,500 including the Polaroid of with the little baby tiger. The one that was a little bit lower is with the baby tiger cut off a bit on the side, which sold for $15,000. And then the camera used sold for $24,500. So very curious about who bought those and whose collection those are going to be in. Uh, what do you guys think about all this? Who wants to start? Yeah, I also am curious about who they went to. But 
you know how the estate have the they have like an archive facility that Karen Langford runs. I've always been curious whether the estate itself gets involved in these auctions and tries to bid and collect these items because that they would obviously have the biggest collection of all of Michael's things. Uh, I just wonder whether they. I mean that. I mean they're obviously um, generating a lot of money year over year through royalties and different things. I, I, if I was ever to interview Karen Langford, that, that would be one thing I'd like to ask her is, is to what extent they become involved in these kind of auctions to secure these artifacts. Yeah, me too. And at this level, I mean, $30,000 for a Polaroid is a lot of money, but it's also kind of not, I don't know. I mean, that one maybe, but the one that went for like 15000 I don't know. That's an, that is an iconic piece of history. And so I'm actually a little bit surprised it didn't go higher the camera um, for sure for not me. that i could like, afford this is it the camera that yeah. the most iconic album cover of all time was shot on i would have thought it would have gone for more as well they're interesting for sure i personally don't know whether i'd bid on polaroids i i'm the kind of person who would want if i have some sort of memorabilia like that i want the highest possible quality version of it and therefore i'd probably want a you know, a large framed copy of the photo that was finally used for the album cover rather than the Polaroid. But there's certainly an interesting bit of history and uh, an interesting bit of memorabilia. The camera I find interesting because uh, that's something that in, in my mind should be placed in any kind of future Michael Jackson or Jackson family museum. And the thought that sprung to mind immediately when I saw that was if any of you have been to Dallas and been to the Sixth Floor Museum, uh, which is you know, focused on the events around the Kennedy assassination, there is an example of the camera that was used by Abraham Zapruder to film the assassination. Mm -hmm. And when I saw this camera, I immediately thought that that would be great as a museum piece because no one's going to get any particular use out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that strikes me as the point, really. I mean, I I think $24,000 for a camera that doesn't work is kind of obscene, Mm. don't you think? It just yeah. strikes me as, um, I mean, there is a cost of living crisis on, so I think 30000 is pretty good going, <laughs> really, for, yeah. um, for a Polaroid. I mean, man, is it the camera that they're selling, is it the Polaroid camera? No. Is, I mean, because surely no. that's not going to no. still work. No, 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 it's not. It, it does say, I'm looking at the page right now for the camera, it says it's non-functioning. Non-functioning. Um, mm. Yeah, but it does the Hasselblad five hundred ELX. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would love to know who. If I would love to have twenty four thousand dollars to spend on a broken camera, but uh, but I don't. <laughs> and I think anyone who does belongs in prison. <laughs> well, that's sort of what I mean about the estate, though. Is like twenty four thousand dollars to them would be absolutely nothing, like at all. Right. But yeah. Exactly. It would be that camera could become a part of a, a very attractive collection to some kind of a museum. And yeah, I'm just curious whether they, they know about these, whether they get involved in them, that kind of thing. I don't know. Maybe they have people that yeah. are actually bidding for them under a different name. I don't know. I don't know. Actually, this, this camera is kind of interesting. It was supposedly also used for the E.T. album and the exclusive wedding photos of Michael and Lisa Marie. Yeah, that, that makes sense because when we, we spoke to Dick, he said that he was hoping to come back one day to tell us another story about – I think he's he's not just a photographer. He's a portrait painter as well, and I'm fairly sure he painted 
Michael and Lisa Marie, and he's got a story around that he wants to tell one day. That surprises me if it was used for the thriller cover and Michael and Lisa Marie's wedding, considering how far apart those two events were. Yeah, that's interesting. I know the Hasselblad is a very, 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 very expensive and luxurious camera, whether it was the medium format camera or full frame. I don't know what kind of camera it was, but it's the top quality camera even back then. It technically could have, um, because it was probably shot on film at that point, It that longevity, it could have, I mean, those things were built to last 30, 40 years. So that doesn't actually surprise, I mean, we're in the digital age now where things break after two, three years, but you know, th- that was all mechanics and film and all that stuff. I think what um, surprises me in general is just, I mean, I would love for my uncle's stuff to be in a museum. I would lo- love for the Jackson stuff to be in a museum, Jackson 5 stuff to be in a museum. So every time I hear an auction or hear something's been auctioned, part of me, like my heart sinks. It really does. And I know that was something my uncle wanted was a museum. Things that he wanted versus things that happen are two different things. I'm not saying there never will be a museum, possibly could be, and that would be incredible. But um, yeah, it's just, I've had to make peace with what my uncle would have wanted versus what the reality is. Yeah, I definitely feel you there. I mean, my best hope is that hopefully like whoever did buy them is going to put them in some sort of, you know, museum or something, but who knows. And Polaroids, uh, just real quick to, to answer, I think the, the the beauty of Polaroids is because they're so rare and unique because it's one time. It's it's mm-hmm. literally, yeah, the quality is not great, but they're the shot that you take before you do the real shot because you're kind of testing out the lighting and stuff. And so it's a one-off. Um, that's the value of it. They capture an actual yeah. moment in history, like really everything happening at that second. And it only happened once in that one Polaroid. So you're right. Yeah. Well, we will look forward to more information about that. Um, Probably won't ever hear who bought them, but maybe who knows? (laughs) We'll see. So moving on, there's kind of an interesting story around some technology that to be honest, I don't 100% understand myself, but um, some developments around the first ever recording of the Jackson 5. Now, this is a little bit of an old story, but there's some new information here. So Big Boy, which was the first recording of the Jackson 5, was sold to this media company, Ayozat, in April 2022. And so just these past couple of days, in fact, I think the sale has just ended. I think it was like a 48-hour sale. A Swedish company called Another Block has put this on digital sale and you can actually become a co-owner in high quality tracks. So we'll talk about what that means because it's a little bit above my head, but starting on December 7th, and I believe it was 48 hours. So it's probably just ending right now as we're recording. There were two options available where you could buy a copy for $25, which included never before heard stims images of the master tape and agreements and a B-side, including the stems, Michael, the lover and my girl. And there was a limited edition for a hundred dollars, which included also unique 
designed artwork and eight additional songs and their never before heard stems. So this is all quite interesting. It says also that for Big Boy, you do not purchase ownership of the royalties, but the digital version of the songs. So we can talk about what all that means. But the bigger update on this as well is that the estate is surprise, surprise, not happy. Even though they had the opportunity to make this purchase back in April of 2022, they are very unhappy about these developments and they have uh, released some statements that uh, we have no information to confirm that the unreleased recordings you are making available are in fact the first time Michael Jackson's voice was put on tape or even that it was the first time he recorded in a studio at all. They're making a big fuss. So what does all this mean? I want to talk to you guys and whoever has kind of insights into how this type, I suppose, of digital property works. I'd love a little more information there first. And then let's chat about the estate's reaction and and what that means. Um, Does anybody understand this exact kind of digital property? Can someone speak to that? Are they NFTs? Are they they calling them NFTs? That's what I'm trying to kind of figure out. It seems a little bit like an NFT to me, but um, I don't completely understand, frankly. Well, an NFT is worth absolutely nothing. They were a big thing about two years ago, and a lot of very dim people spent a lot of money on them, and they turned out to be worth absolutely nothing. There were people that bought them for like a million dollars and then tried to sell them and couldn't even get 30 grand for them. (laughs) I mean, um, it's basically you just own a piece of code that says you own something, but you don't actually own it. I mean, it's just a, a complete load of old toffee. I don't really understand anything about what they're selling here to be perfectly honest. In this case, though, they are releasing these stems, for example. So you get a copy of the music, which just sounds like iTunes. It just sounds like buying yeah. buying a download and then downloading something, basically. And you get a photograph of the tape. I mean, yippee. But, um, yeah, it just seems like an extremely expensive version of paying to download a song. Does this mean that like a remixer, for example, would actually have the right and not get shut down in terms of like using the stems in music they're making? Yeah, I don't know. I need a music person. I'm a music person and I'm confused um, in that way. (laughs) What this company, Another Block, are promising people is that if you have paid for this, if you paid for the $25 or the $100 one, that you will receive some royalties back when these tracks are streamed. So I'm not sure if it's a formal contract in which these buyers become partial owners of the original rights. I don't think it's quite like that. I think that the company that bought them retain the rights, but what they're saying is in the future when they get streamed, we will give you back some of the royalties. That's what they're promising. Whether that actually happens, I have no idea. So I'm not really that surprised that the estate have (laughs) become upset about this because it's a pretty odd arrangement, I would say. Yeah, I I honestly don't know much about it or enough about it. Um, Did they purchase the master recording of it? Yeah, it is very complicated. I'm actually looking at their website right now, and it's not illuminating it at all for me. Although there is a quote from your grandmother here, Taj, um, 
saying through another block's endeavor, the Jackson family's initial recordings of our musical heritage find a new rhythm for the digital age. Interesting. Do we think she actually um, said that? I don't want to comment on that. <laughs> you don't want, you don't want my <laughs> honest opinion in that, <laughs> in, in that way. Um, no, that doesn't. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say, um, <laughs> look, my grandma is always about keeping the legacy going and her boys and her daughters and anything that is Jackson 5, Jackson related. It's great to see something reissued, to see new generations be able to consume it. I don't know about the wording of that, but I do know that she would generally, just like all of us, would be generally happy to see anything undiscovered or, and I know it's not undiscovered, but anything unearthed that's been away for a little while is always nice. It should be legal, but yeah, it, it's always nice to, yeah. It does say this version has never been released until now. So mm. could I be a, for yeah, an early be. version or a demo version yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I know with our music, we don't own the master recordings of our stuff. Sony owns that. So if Sony sold it to another company, we wouldn't really have a say in that. It would be what it is. Yeah, I guess the question just is why the estate, if they had the opportunity to purchase it themselves, why they wouldn't have. But then again, they seem very focused on Michael Jackson's solo era. So maybe that just wasn't as big a concern to them. I don't know. Yeah, it's a bit like the kid who doesn't want anybody else to play with a toy, but then once they've got it, they throw it on the floor and don't play with it anymore. <laughs> right. That's kind of what it reminds me of. I don't really get why the estate is so upset about this when they clearly had no intention of monetizing this themselves. I've got to read you this, though, because this I read, I read the story on MJ Vibe this morning. I'm just going to read you this without comment. The estate also sharply criticized the decision to publish previously unreleased songs, telling another block that Michael Jackson was, quote, the consummate perfectionist, and that he had been very careful about what recordings he released to the public. Because of this, we have serious doubts that Michael Jackson would have ever wanted these recordings released and commercialized. Talk us through breaking news then. <laughs> oh dear. Sorry, I'll take that away. I'll take that hit for the team if you want. <laughs> Hey, no, leave that in, please. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So basically, bottom line, another scenario of the estate kind of wanting it both ways, which is a shame. But yeah, if you purchased this and you love this format and you think this is super exciting or have any thoughts, positive or ne negative about it, share those with us. We'd love to hear about this. This is kind of a new um, space that, uh, you know, obviously I'm still wrapping my head around. So um, let us know what you think. Okay, um, moving on to some fun fan news, because for the most part, I think MJ the Musical has excited us all and been a really positive thing. They have just announced that they are extending the run of the show in London. And of course, it's also just about and or maybe has already even started touring around the US. And it's also going to be coming to... Australia! Yay! We're <laughs> getting something. Are you going to go see it? <laughs> <laughs> You're getting something. <laughs> 
And that's not going to be, I think, what, until 2025, yeah. I think we talked about. <laughs> it's a long wait, but it was very exciting. I'm definitely hoping to go. Yeah. Long wait. Um, in London, it will be extended to September 2024. So it'll be basically running through this whole coming year. Um, and it's coming to LA actually pretty soon. I think it's starting in, over the holidays and running through January, I believe. It'll be in San Diego in March. So I will finally get to see it, which I'm excited about. Excellent. Yeah. So that's just overall, you know, good news. And actually on that front, I did just kind of random thought thinking about the Broadway play and just what a big success it's had. Taj, since we have you on, can I just ask your impressions like from the family perspective about the play? And is that something like the family has been able to participate in at all in terms of it becoming such a huge success? Are you able to speak to that at all? Yeah. Uh, well, basically, I knew about the play early, but there was not really with the family any participation, not in our doing. It was just they didn't ask us <laughs> uh, our thoughts. Are, and so it's been hard. I, I would say that. Let's just say I, it's been hard because we always want to promote something that is Michael Jackson and that's something that's celebratory. Just sometimes feel as a family or a family member that at times it's only when it's needed that we get called upon. Like I know that for the opening of the Broadway play, my family was asked to come and kind of show its support. And rightfully so we should, but at the same time, I can tell you there's no give and take. I don't want to get too far and and too, you know, but I think for them using my dad and my uncle's name and likeness and stuff like that, there should be something for that. There's been nothing for that. I think it's fair that if you utilize someone's name and likeness, that they should be compensated in some way for it. And that's in anything, any kind of industry. And that especially if it's a successful something, and it's not like they signed their rights away to not be used. My dad is still living, um, last I checked. And <laughs> that's not supposed to be funny. That sounded funny, but <laughs> it wasn't. Um, but it's just like that, you know, so it's not a thing of like, oh, well, you know, the, the rights of him disappear and blah, blah, blah. These are living people. And maybe there's a loophole. Maybe they didn't have to ask the Jacksons or the, the, the brothers or my grandma or my grandpa, maybe they didn't have to, you know, maybe they don't have to compensate them. It just certain things should be the right thing to do, if that makes sense. That's disappointing to hear. Thank you for sharing that. And it's a good kind of reality check of this uh, just constant situation like has come up several times. And let me, let me tell you why it, 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 because I'm probably going to take heat from this. Yeah. Why it frustrates me and why I say these things is because I read comments from people all the time that says, your family benefits from this, your family makes money from this. So people have that natural assumption. And so it's frustrating when people have that assumption, oh, well, you should just be quiet because your family's getting paid. They have that assumption already. And then for it to be the opposite, it hurts and it's painful. So that's that's why I want to clear it up because yes, my dad isn't making anything off of the Broadway play and still supports it. 
I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's fair for any of the brothers not to, if their name and likeness is used. And I would say the same thing if we made a Broadway play about Michael and Michael was in it, we would have to pay. Frankly, it would probably get shot down if you tried to do that, right? Because they'd want so much control. <laughs> um, yeah. It's really disappointing. Yeah, it's, it should just go both ways. And I and it, it comes down to value. And I, I'm someone that will fight for my, for my family's legacy. And that includes all my family in that. And I want my family to be valued, all of them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely, Taj. And just even earlier in the episode when we were talking, when when you were talking about how Thriller really came sort of at the end of a period of time where there was, you know, destiny and triumph and then off the wall in Thriller. And, and you know, it really showed me that, you know, Thriller wouldn't have been what it was unless Michael was able to do all of that amazing work just in the years prior with his brothers, you know. Um, it was included in that journey. So I I agree. And it, it frustrates me so much that the media focused directly on Michael as a great artist. And I know we all know he was. There's no doubt about that. But if there's anything that's overshadowed, it's, you know, especially those um, self-produced albums that he did with his brothers, like Destiny and Triumph. Mm-hmm. Man, they're amazing. They're yeah, incredible. And the, and, and the songs. And, and look, the thing is that because Michael was so ahead of everyone else and, and such a big phenomenon, you know, he casted a bigger shadow to everyone else. And I look at my dad and I look at the brothers, the talent that the Jackson five had, if it was any other group and there wasn't Michael Jackson behind that group, they would get their, for the age that they were performing and whether it was Jermaine's bass or, or my dad's guitar or, or Jackie and, and Marlon's dance moves with Michael, it was a unit. The magic was the group. And then Michael took it to another level. I'm not going to sit here and say he didn't. He took it to another atmosphere. But let's not forget where it started. When you look at other huge groups from the 60s, from the 70s, you know, let's say the Beatles, for example, you know, there's just huge clothing lines that get get put out to do with them. There are reissues after reissues. There's documentary films about them, all of that kind of thing. How does the Jackson 5 or the Jacksons as a group get managed today in terms of marketing and that whole machine that sort of exists around it? Who's in charge? Are the brothers, do they talk to a company that sort of attempts to do those kind of things or... Because surely there would be an appetite for it. Yeah, I think the hard thing would be just that it's, um, and I can say this freely as someone that is in a group with two other people, um, they have, you know, there's five of them, you know, six if you count Randy. And so you needed all of them to agree on something to make it work. If one doesn't agree or if one doesn't want to sign something, a, a document or an agreement, then it doesn't get done. And so I think with the Jackson five, even if they all wanted to do something, there's a lot of hurdles. I'm saddened because I don't feel like my dad has even control of his own destiny. Oh, I just said another pun. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But it's just like, that's that it's, it's so the only thing that they can control is touring. And that's why they're always on tour. But they can't dictate if the Jackson 5 cartoon comes back. They can't dictate, you know, I, the Funko Pops of Michael and all that stuff. I, I tweeted to them. I'm like, 
where's the Jackson 5 one? You know, that would be a great one to see. Or even a Motown 25 with the Jacksons in. But it's like that for me, like those kind of things are so cool. And so those are collectors. And I just think there's a forgotten world in there. And I get it. You know, the um, it would benefit my dad and all that stuff. It would be exciting to see. There are so many great tours. I mean, there's just limitless amounts of documentary potential, for example. It would be amazing. I, I will answer it this way because I just thought of a way to answer it. In the music industry, sometimes the record companies would sometimes promote the thing that they had the biggest royalty rates on in terms of what they were going to profit on more. So they weren't going to push an artist that they weren't making a mega deal on. That's why you see a lot of famous people that were screwed over was because it was lucrative for the record company to push them because they reaped all the rewards of it. But then once that artist kind of gets the footing, gets the power back and starts divvying up the pie, they don't get pushed as much. They're dropped quicker in that way because now the record company can't make as much off of them. And that's just one-on-one business. Why push something that you don't make as much money than something that you 100% control? My thing is, obviously, it's the legacy. That's why I would do it. But, you know, if you're putting on only your business hat, there is no incentive. Yeah. I mean, there certainly is still, I think, lots of love and a a market for them. I mean, when I saw the brothers over the summer, the concert was packed. It was full. And it was so much enthusiasm. Um, It just seems like that could still, there still are plenty of opportunities to... um, make use of that in in the market. I work in book publishing and I see a similar thing that like you have these like iconic people and a publisher will just only put money into promoting the thing that is making the most money at that particular moment. It's just not a lot of thought about like legacy and history, you know? It's hard because I I look at my dad and my uncles as rock and roll hall of fame legends and pioneers in terms of what they've been able to do. And so there's a huge respect factor for me. And I just feel like I want to see them get their due justice. You spend a lot of time talking with us about the impact of your family on the world. Do you plan to include the story of Michael within the Jackson family and the Jacksons as a part of your docuseries? Of course. Yeah. That's a big part of it. Not a big part of the docuseries. It's a big part of the legacy aspect of it especially someone that lived a lot of that, I firsthand saw that aspect of it, whether it's me or my dad or um, other members of the family commenting on um, my uncle and what he was able to achieve. At the same time, the Jackson Five, they did it as a group. I say that because even with my uncle, Michael and all my memories of him, he was so proud of that group. Granted, he wanted to soar higher and become even bigger, but it was not at the face of like of not caring about his brothers and what they were doing and and what they had accomplished. And so I feel like it would be doing a disservice if I did not cover, first of all, Michael's whole childhood was on stage. But at the same time, it was on stage a lot with his brothers. And so his brothers did mold him in a certain way as well. And 
while we were able to reap the benefits of Michael Jackson, the amazing king of pop and the phenomenon was because of all the work that the brothers with him did together as a unit. That is kind of one of the things that I just, I want to make sure is captured. And, and the docu-series is 100% about, it's not for today, it's for today, tomorrow, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. That's how I look at it. So it's a time capsule. And I'm making sure that the Jacksons and the Jackson 5 are in that time capsule and they get the due credit that they deserve as well. Because without them, Michael Jackson wouldn't be Michael Jackson. Just the same way without Michael Jackson, the Jacksons 5 and Jacksons wouldn't be. They were a package at that point and they all had their strengths and weaknesses. Has your dad and your uncles, have they been like really forthcoming and participate in the docuseries? Like, have you been able to capture any of their stories on interview yet? I've been very sneaky with that part of it. My dad will be my main, um, I don't want to give too much away. Let's just say this. There's different generations in the docuseries in terms of different. And my dad is is that earlier generation aspect of it because I didn't live that. I was around for some of it, but I didn't live that. So he is more of that authority and through his viewpoint of it. When I get older, I lived a certain thing that he wasn't around as much, around Michael as much. And so that is my viewpoint and that's my narrative. The whole thing with the doc series has been from the people that knew him best. They're kind of like witnesses of something that was amazing. And also something that Michael had to go through or deal with and people that came around and did this and that. One of the things I liked about Thriller 40 was hearing my uncle's voice, hearing him say something and and tell a narrative and whatever. So whenever that is the case, that will be utilized more than just talking heads because, and I don't want to say talking heads because that's one of the reasons why I don't like calling my thing a docuseries or documentary is because I think documentaries and are kind of boring. I want to do something a little different, just the same way that my uncle thought music videos could be kind of um, given a little fresh kick in the butt. Whoever's on screen, there should be a reason they're on screen and they should be not only entertaining, but you should feel like it taking them off the screen, something you would lose something from it. Yeah. And I made it a very, very clear point in the beginning back behind the scenes. So I, didn't, I don't think I told the public this, but I'm not interested in interviewing famous people unless they are famous people that were vital to my uncle. I'm not just going to pick a random person that's popular now and ask you know, about Michael Jackson. That's not important to me. And I don't see the importance of that aspect. Of Does it. that mean you're not getting the CEO of TikTok? Um, well, <laughs> that was done already. <laughs> and, and, here, and here's the say, and, 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 I'm making a joke about that, but TikTok is huge and TikTok is so important. And TikTok was one of the things that when Leaving Neverland came out, that was a weapon for us to get the truth out there. Also, to to not think that those dance trends, whether it was a moonwalk or it was the toe point or it was a lot of that went a long way. And so I'm actually very appreciative of TikTok and BTS because BTS kind of did that with their popularity, I mean, the, the biggest boy band at that, or um, K-pop group at the time, and still humongous and probably still is the biggest. And so them 
doing that dynamite video with undeniable Michael dance moves, it reestablished the importance of Michael. So I just don't want to do that in my docuseries. It's, I'm not saying that's not important. I'm saying that that's not what this is. My thing is about people walking in Michael's shoes and walking in his footsteps. And I think I'm starting to say too much, but walking in his footsteps and in a way that the, the audience is put in his shoes. I'll say it that way. The human aspect of it, the heart aspect of it. That's what I want to capture because that's what I knew of my uncle. And I think that's what the public needs to learn and rediscover who was Michael Jackson. That is something that the people that knew him best can tell you. You know, you don't need, quote unquote, publicists of Rolling Stone or, you know, the blah, blah, blah billboard to tell you who Michael Jackson was. They'll tell, they can tell you who the music of Michael Jackson was or whatever, but they can't tell you who Michael Jackson was. And only the people closest to him that were his friends, his family, the people that worked a site with him, they can tell you who Michael Jackson was. And so without blabbing too much, that's why I love people like Vincent Patterson, because going to Brad Sundberg's seminar, I learned something about my uncle through hearing um, Vincent's story. And I'm not going to repeat the story because I, I kind of want to say it. <laughs> but um, he has so many amazing stories. But I think that was kind of where the docuseries took a change way early was because I was like, these stories that I'm hearing from people that knew him best, I, as someone that thought they knew so much about my uncle, I'm learning more. And I'm saying, and I'm fascinated. And so if I'm fascinated, I know the public will be. And so that's how I, I am approaching that aspect of it. So I was kind of happy. I was I was kind of shocked that he wasn't in Thriller 40, but I was kind of happy he wasn't as well yeah. for, for selfish reasons. But I would I would have rather him be in it. This is how I operate. Whether it hurt my project, I would have rather him be in it because he deserved his his legacy. He deserves to be in it than, you know, being selfish and being like, hey, it's for me and all that stuff. So, yeah. Well, I guess, Taj, I just do have another question about the docuseries that one of the criticisms, which you probably are aware of, we've discussed it in previous episodes, but I guess some folks, particularly people that have backed the project through GoFundMe, have sort of indicated online they'd like a little bit more sort of, I guess, I don't know if there's a better term, but proof or evidence of sort of what's going on in, in your process. I'm just wondering, would you be willing to, or is there any kind of tidbit or nugget you could drop to say like, here is something that I've recently worked on or an interview that I've recently done or something like that, just so all the people that have backed it can go, ah, yes, there's hope for the future. It's coming out. It's it's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, that's that's and that's very fair. One of the things that I've seen and and I don't like to be like, ha, 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 like uh, that happened or whatever is the road to this docuseries and documentary in terms of a lot of the people that started this early, other people that are doing documentaries, they've run into some roadblocks that I was already aware of. And so it took longer for me to get around those things while they found it out three-fourths of the way in. And now they're at the mercy of those roadblocks. While for me, I've always been the point of like, I have to clear those roadblocks before because I once those roadblocks are in, you're kind of screwed. And that's kind of where Marcos being one of, a great example of that, he made an amazing project 
and there's roadblocks. And he found that out late. And there weren't roadblocks probably when he started. And that is the hardest thing is that now um, there's the politics aspect of it, which I, I've lived. And so I've always said this, if there was a hidden channel slash room that I could go to with the people that have had invested, and I knew that no one else that didn't invest or someone that was trying to stop the project would be in that room, um, I would happily say everything that was going on and say, this is where we're at. This is what we're doing. Here's the strategy, whatever. Because I feel that if you invested, you deserve to have that. But at the same time, what's been hard for me is that there's something with Michael Jackson that they don't want the truth out there. And I say they, not the investors. I'm saying there's a powerful entity that does not want Michael Jackson to soar, doesn't want the truth, or doesn't want him to be humanized. We're not playing fair. Sometimes people don't get that and see that until later on. And they and then they're like, oh, I didn't know the backside politics of all this, but I see it and I grew up in it and I see it right away. And I've and I was very aware from even, you know, the story of like way back with Leaving Neverland of people that didn't want the truth out there and were trying to stop me and Brandy and other people from doing it. So I've always said that send me an email or send me something. I'll try and be honest with you and tell you what's going on. I've also learned that there's a lot of hiders in there and there's a lot of people that are on Wade's camp or Dan Reed's camp or James's camp that have pretended to be fans and pretended to know what's going on about the docuseries, just to probably try and destroy it from within. As someone that wants to, and I know I'm going all around the place, I'm not the best person for surprises. I usually give gifts early. Um, I'm one of those people, like it's uh, because I can't wait and in that. And this has been the hardest thing has been keeping something close to my chest that I wanna scream out to everyone and be like, oh my gosh, you won't believe who I just talked to. You won't believe who I just, who's just signed on to be part of this. But I can't do that because if I say that, if I say so-and-so is going to be in the docuseries, you best believe there's going to be a bunch of people trying to dissuade that person of being in the docuseries or dissuade that person from being part of this. But I've had to be quiet on a lot of things and even to people that have been closest to me, I've I've not said everything. I can tell you in the last month, there's been two huge people that have, and I don't and don't speculate too much because I, you know, <laughs> you know people, I know through. I know where fans can go with certain <laughs> things. And like, oh my gosh, they they got so and so, and it'd be like, no, 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 stop. Um, but it, but there's been two big people that we have gotten that like I knew that would probably have taken convincing. But have now, um, I don't. I got to be careful. Uh, just yeah, um, I, I'm. Be open with me, and honestly, if you could think of ways of doing this, I'm open to hearing it. I really am because you guys do deserve to know what's going on, and and so if we can do that fairly and and carefully, I I am very willing to do that because I don't like being called a scam artist. I don't like being called a fraud. I know. You know, I read those things, and and I've always said, you know, this project will. The only way this project will happen is if I'm not here. It's to my core. It's the it's important for me for the public to know who Michael Jackson was because. 
he is not only was one of my role models, but uh, and like a bigger brother, but I modeled a lot of my life from him. I need the public to know who he was. I need my daughters to know who he was because they love his music and they always say Uncle Michael and Uncle Michael this. And, and the saddest thing is he's not around, so they can't experience that magic. They can't experience how amazing he was, but I can show them that. And that's why they've been one of my main inspirations of the magic of Michael Jackson and, and why it's so dire and important is because of my family and being like, this generation needs to know the truth. Well, we couldn't agree with you more on that, Taj. And thank you for, you know, everything you have shared with us. And also the, you know, when you recently were on with us and went total deep dive on all this too, we really appreciate all the information. And we are certainly here for you. And I personally can't imagine what a complex project this much must be because, you know, we spent the first part of this episode talking about like how many different documentaries just around the Thriller album there are that tell different sides of the story. So how do you, <laughs> how do you capture a whole life? Well, You're doing thank amazing. You, thank you for saying that. Um, but I also, maybe. for me, one of the things that I'm most confident about, I don't care if 5,000 documentaries come out on Michael Jackson. There won't be a documentary like this because this is coming from the inside, not from the outside looking in. This is coming from the inside. And these are coming from the people that knew him best. And, and so if people are excited about stories that they've never heard before, then this is going to be a special treat. Well, we can't wait whenever it's ready for the world. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tosh, for going so in-depth there. We you know, always appreciate your transparency and are just excited to see this project when it's ready. We know it's going to be fantastic. So our continued support goes out to you. We have just a couple last items we want to touch on. And one that cannot go without mentioning is that there has been a big update in the Wade Robson trial in that Vince Finaldi has withdrawn from the case. He is Wade Robson's longtime attorney, of course, and they have brought in a new attorney named John Carpenter. So Charlie, our poor Charlie, who's not feeling very well today, uh, since he is the expert in this area, I'm wondering, Charlie, if you can comment just briefly on this development for us. Yeah, I'm, I don't know much about finality, apart from that he's an ambulance chasing self-publicist. And I, I know even less about uh, Carpenter. So I, I can't um, offer any insight into why Finaldi has left or why Carpenter has been brought in. The good news is, as we already knew, Tom Mesereau is going to be joining the team for the defense, who is a phenomenal litigator, one of the best lawyers in, well, one of the best lawyers of the last hundred years in America. He's going to be joined by um, Jennifer Keller, who represented Kevin Spacey in the case, I think the guy's name was Anthony Rap Brown, basically Kevin Spacey's first accuser. Against all the odds, Kevin Spacey triumphed in that case. He won the case. So both lawyers there have great pedigree going to be representing Michael Jackson's interests. Great. We'll see. And one last little news item, just a short 
update for fans is that since the Hollywood writer's strike has finally resolved after many months, the Michael Jackson biopic will resume shooting in January, as we understand, and hopefully scheduled release for 2026. So that's great news. You know, fingers crossed that it's a a good film. We'll see. But uh, great news that it's back on track. Just a quick question for Taj, which is not about the biopic, but is related for those who attend every year, what does this mean, or do you not know yet, for um, <laughs> for the, the Halloween Thriller Night? Yeah, yeah. does does this mean that your oh, fundraiser question. will be able to go ahead this year or not? It doesn't look good, just in general. I don't know when they're shooting whatever at Havenhurst. That was the whole concern. That's why it didn't happen last year. The Halloween party, the the charity party. And I have no clue what the shooting schedule is this year. So it's not looking good for this year as well. Can I put a left field suggestion out there? And I'm sure you've already thought of this, and this is incredibly cheeky. But has Prince thought of speaking to Ron Burkle to see if he could host an event at Neverland instead? Yes. Uh, I mean, we've thought about it. So that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I think that's all I can say in that way. Um, between us and Hill LA, we've thought about it. I don't know where we're at with that. I know that we have thought about that as a possibility at one point or another, which would be amazing, uh, by the way. Yeah. Yes, that would be really amazing. Yeah. So we'll get, we'll get Jamin and the Charlie's well, and, out for that one. And Ron, and Ron does so much <laughs> for charity as well, Ron Burkle, in that way. That's yeah. why it would make sense. Yes. Yeah. Sorry for putting you on the spot with that. Oh, one. no, no. That's a good question. Hey, look, that was a question we asked, too. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so it's a good question. Yeah. And um, I will admit I am a little bit bummed that it, the party might not happen again this year because it's so magical. But um, whenever it can happen again, we'll be there. It'll be great. And there, But there are some other charity events going on um, at Havenhurst. I know there's one yes. next weekend mm-hmm. for a movie screening and stuff. So it's it's nice to see some of these um, charity events happening, you know, around this space, maybe more and more regularly. Um, and yeah, that's exciting. It, you know, exactly. works for everybody. It benefits great causes and is really special and exciting to fans. So awesome. Everybody wins. Exactly. So as we move towards wrapping up this Christmas episode, which has been so much fun, we can't forget one very special segment. So we do so much recording, of course, and we put a lot of time and care into everything we do. But we do have plenty of our own little flubs and silly moments, which thankfully... Carter and Jamin mostly edit out. But once a year, we have to appreciate the silliness. So here I am pleased to present is our annual blooper reel. All right, here we go. Hello. Oh, wait, what's that noise? It might have been my cup of tea, but don't worry, because we use the individual tracks anyway. Oh, yes, that's right. Don't know what you're worrying about. I'm just going to be lawn mowing while you're talking anyway. Uh, all right, so Hannah, final thoughts. Well, <clears throat> I wasn't supposed to do that. I'm so sorry, Charlie. Whereas Damien Shields and I, we're from the same state, but he's from Victoria originally, so he may sound a little bit different to me because he's from um, rural Victoria, I think, when he grew Is up. Is that why he swears so much? Yeah, uh, probably. No, that's probably just because he's drinking. No, I, <laughs> oh, it's, I think it's... I've got cousins in Victoria. I think it's definitely a Victorian thing. 
<laughs> Maybe it's just because he only ever messages me when the MJ estate has done something. Maybe that's why he's always swearing. <laughs> all right, on to our last discussion topic. First of all, sorry, on to our last... Oh, Jesus, what is my brain today? Must be all that curry. Okay. <laughs> but also just that a lot of times... You- I feel like every time I speak, an airplane goes over. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. Uh, and people can find me across social media at elisecapron.com. Uh, and in a new interview with Noah Callahan Beaver. <laughs> is, that, is this guy's last name Beaver? The copy. I'm not even going to say it. Maybe his middle name's Leave It To. Beaver. <laughs> Leave It To Beaver. So, Brad, you mentioned the estate has reached out to you. What has been your relationship with the MJ estate even before this happened? $25, which included never before, excuse me. We don't necessarily have to go into detail. We can just have a quick, yeah. uh, this episode was great and looking forward to season 10 or, or some crap like that. I don't know. <laughs> some crap like that. I love that. it. I love it. Some crap love like it. that. <laughs> I have wonderful diction. Yes. <laughs> Do you mind if I throw my merch? Oh, yes, of course. Sure. Please. Yeah, we'll, we'll put it in at the appropriate place too. Go for it. Uh, <laughs> all right, Charlie. Good luck with this. Now we're going to move into, let's have a look. What do we got? Taj. And how do you say his wife's name? Tiana. 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 Not a th- like you don't say th. No, it's t- t- Tiana. Tiana. Well, unless I've been calling her the wrong name to her face all this time. <laughs> but I did also once run up to Tiana and throw my arms around her and say, Tiana, it's so good to see you. And the woman said, I am not Tiana. And it was uh, it was her identical triplet. Oh my god! That was that was. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And the way she looked at me, it was as if, it was as if it, I was the fiftieth person that had done that that hour because it was at the Halloween party. <laughs> and she said, "That is Tyana." And she pointed across the, the Havenhurst garden to her exact double, or exact triple. And uh, yeah, so that was embarrassing. Well, hang on, Elise. I think your audio was crackling then. Yeah, you've gone oh, crackly. Sorry. Sorry. Is that better? All connected. Yeah, that's weird. All yeah. the sound okay now? We're going to have no, to fix little... that. <coughs> <coughs> yeah, there's a little bit of crackling still, like radio static. Can you just really? um, wiggle your uh, mic cord? Yeah. First things first, I've been, I just realized I was going through completely the wrong topic. So you're talking about Harrison Funk and Janet Jackson. I was reading the 154 notes because I'm an idiot. <laughs> So <laughs> I had completely the wrong articles open on my screen. I'm going, oh, yeah, when are we going to talk about this? Where the fuck's that? Uh, super. So I guess then we'll, uh, blah, blah, where are we going? Cut this part out, Charlie. Blah. Uh, <laughs> um, Maybe actually just to make that smoother, if you could respond to Ad- what Adam just said and then carry on. Okay. How do I respond to that? <laughs> okay, hang on a second. <laughs> That's Sorry. Virtual no, hugs. It's just so sweet. Um, now, do we want to do a thing where I introduce every news topic or shall we take turns at it? So Harrison Funk is next. I think you should do it because you're okay. the boss. You're the daddy MJ cast. God character. Can I please have that as an official title? Daddy MJ cast or... No. I mean, you can if you want to. <laughs> you know, maybe I could get a business card. Daddy MJ cast. <laughs> All right. Could I get one made up as well? Chief blame taker and hired goon. 
<laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you something actually, because you mentioned in the book that you mentioned in the book that through your hang on, I just dropped my notepad. All right. Um onto a bit of sadder news here. Friend of the show, Harrison can, Funk. Who, sorry, can can you do that again? But there was a little bit of a laugh when you said sadder news. It probably isn't appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh, <laughs> it's terrible. Oh god. <clears throat> John Cameron's latest podcast effort all about Michael Jackson during the bad era, which I can't get into, uh, which I can't wait to get into. Now, um, of course, whilst this is all... Oh, hang on. Hang on. Crazy dog. <laughs> this is so typical. Good grief. Can you hear that? Can you hear the dog? <laughs> yeah, I can hear you, doggy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that was so funny. And uh, thank you, Jamin, for putting that together this year. It always gives me a chuckle. Okay, guys. Well, I think we have covered all the recent news. I mean, I know so much more will happen over the holidays. We're going to have exciting stuff to cover early next year. But this has been an amazing roundup. And thank you guys so much. Thank you, Taj, for joining us and giving us your updates. Thinking about this past year, I mean, it's been pretty incredible. I will admit, and Jamin, maybe you can comment on this too, that we did have a few special episodes that fell through this year. So we didn't get quite as many special episodes as we wanted, but we are still in development for those for next season. And I know I know some extra really cool things will come through, but it's still, it's been a great year. I'm just looking back at some of our episodes. We had, I mean, Brad Sunberg we had on, Taj we had on, we had Case for Innocence special, which is just, you know, if you have not checked out that project, please go do. They're doing great work. Um, Geraldine Hughes, Charlie Thompson, you did an incredible interview with Geraldine Hughes. And uh, oh, and our ghost roundtable. Oh my gosh, Adam Green, Paul Black, Hannah Savage, incredible, some of the most amazing film insights. And we had Bob Jinkus, amazing stories from someone who I feel like we don't get to hear from quite as often. So I would say it's been a pretty good season. And I am quite excited about going into year 10. Um, Jamin, we sort of touched on this in the very beginning, but do you have any final thoughts on coming upon a decade of the MJ cast or reflections on this past year you'd like to add in? Just to thank our audience, really. Um, yeah, it has been a a more difficult season this one because we've all <laughs> most of us have kids and you know things have gotten really hectic at work for a lot of us as well um in the background and it it has been a sort of a bit more of a challenging season in terms of being able to balance everything to make it all happen it has also been difficult to secure guests this time around that's not something we've had much drama with in previous seasons the first you know 8 or so years that we did this it was sounds odd to say, but kind of like a little easier to, to <laughs> secure our special guests. This time around, it, it was more challenging. I think it was just, you know, coincidence. A lot of the people we were talking to were very busy with their own lives and, and work and that kind of thing. And a bunch of people we spoke to are saying, yes, we definitely do want to record with you. We just need a little bit more time to be ready. So maybe in a month or so. So um, we're sort of anticipating that next season, our 10th season, hopefully we'll have a few more special guests than we've had this year, but we've still had some great ones in season nine. And especially that Geraldine Hughes one comes to mind, Charlie. I just want to give you some you know, special props with that one because that one was like, when you think about what you were able to capture and accomplish in that interview, you know, some of those stories, the world 
at large just still has not taken notice of that. The story that she's got to tell is one that's so central to unpacking the allegations against Michael Jackson and learning the truth. So well done in particular on being able to capture that one. Uh, We've also recorded an episode that probably will join another one in the vault and never see the light of day. I'm not going to reveal names, but we did interview a Michael Jackson collaborator, a fairly key one actually, and we got uh, pretty much halfway through the story. We recorded for three hours and we got halfway through his story, but um, let's just say that episode's not ready to come out and uh, might be sitting in the vault for uh, some time. (laughs) (laughs) Someday, someday you guys will hear it. Someday. There's two now in there. <laughs> I, I think it's it's been a great season and I can't wait for season 10. I do have to pinch myself that, yeah, like I said earlier, it's like 10 years of the MJ cast. That's going to be more than a quarter of my life in total that we've been doing, um, doing this show and I love it and I can't see an end in sight. And thank you so much to all of our listeners that support us through all of this for sticking around and engaging with us, especially as our, you know, the MJ cast is a bit different now to what it was five years ago. We don't participate in social media as much as we used to. The social media landscape has changed massively, but, you know, thank you, Elise, for for heading up Instagram and thank you, Charlie, for really heading up Twitter. And yeah, just thanks to everybody for the emails that you send in. We really appreciate those deeply when we when we receive those. Thank you to our partners as well to jared to jess to to my wife lee you know for sticking with it as well because they sacrificed so much as (laughs) to uh you know allow us to do this it's like you know every few weekends they've got to put on hold a few hours of their lives as well to allow us to do this so we really deeply appreciate that and taj i just want to say thank you just so much to you as well and also the the broader jackson family for embracing us over the years and I just feel so lucky we're able to do this, I guess, you know, with the blessing of you and the Jackson family, that that really touches all of us as well. Well, uh, um, I think it's a testament to the work you guys do because uh, we see the love and care. And these really are chronicles, stories that you guys are kind of capsuling. And I love that aspect of it. And so I started, you know, I wanted to be part of this because I was a fan of, of the podcast in that way. And I wanted to have my, you know, be part of this. And I am just really appreciative that you guys keep asking me back, you know, as I said, tradition for Christmas. So hopefully next Christmas I'll be (laughs) asked back again, but um, I really enjoy these. And, and I sometimes put my foot in my mouth and, you know, I, I always go back going, you know, was I, you know, uh, I, was I, too hard on the estate? Was I fair? Like, you know, in that way, because there's repercussions for anything, but I also want to be honest in that way. And it's, it's a, it's a hard line because my integrity is everything. And I would expect people to be hard on me, which they have been. And so I, I keep that standard up. I was honest with my uncle as well in that. And I think that's why me and my brothers, why he loved us so much because we could, he had a bunch of yes people around him and we would tell him our honest opinions. And so I still do that to this day with anything that involves my uncle. And um, you might not like it. I might not be a hundred percent right or wrong, but you're going to at least hear my honest opinion. Well, we very deeply appreciate that. 
very like you can't even know it means means so much to us and i should say on the topic of tradition yes let's please make this a tradition and uh next year i'm getting us all matching sweaters <laughs> yes so watch out. let's do it <laughs> <laughs> Um, I just want to say thank you as well. This is just, this is such a fun project. The MJ cast is so dear to my heart. I'm so grateful to be part of it. And just thank you. Thank you all of you guys. I mean, Jamin to you for being the engine that keeps us running and for all the amazing time and work and insights from the Charlies. Um, both you guys are just incredible and I'm so lucky to, to know you all and Taj. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your support and joining us. Why don't we go around just quickly and let people know where to find us and um, then we'll wrap up and enjoy our holiday season. Um, Taj, where can folks find you? Oh, I knew you were going to start with me. Um, <laughs> I actually, I was, I was looking, I was opening up my phone and looking at my socials because I, you don't uh, have to. Start I just, I don't, don't know what, what, um, I don't know what my, tw- if my Twitter's three or oh three. I, I'm like, I'm so bad. Three, Is I it think. okay? Um, you can also just say search Taj Jackson okay, yeah. on any platform uh, on X or Twitter. Uh, <laughs> it's at Taj Jackson three. On Instagram, I think it's just Taj Jackson. Um, yeah, it's just Taj Jackson. And that's in TikTok. I have no idea. I think it's just Taj Jackson, but I've only put two things up on TikTok. So um, yeah, that's that's where it's at. Great. And Charlie Thompson, I know you don't want people to find you, but where can they find you? <laughs> they can find me on Twitter at C.E. Thompson with no P. And um, on Instagram, uh, C. Thompson Journo, J-O-U-R-N-O, also with no P. And by the way, if you email me and you write, dear Mr. Thompson, there's a P in it, <laughs> I don't answer. <laughs> Just FYI. Because it's literally right there in the email address. So anyway, yes, that's, that's where to find me. <laughs> and I do want to thank you as well, Charlie, for, as Jamin said, for doing so much of our, the heavy lifting on our, um, on our Twitter slash X account these days. Oh, what a cesspit um, that's become. But, um... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really used to be our primary oh, platform, yeah. but yeah, it just, it has changed a lot. Yeah. yeah. It's very Nazi infested now, but, um, Ooh, I'm, I'm, you know, just thank you everyone. I'm, I'm very proud to be involved with the show. I love you all. You're you're very um, dedicated, and uh, it's a pleasure to work with you all. We love you more. Yeah, we feel the same way. Carter, where can folks find you? <laughs> yeah, good question. You can find me on the social platform formerly known as Twitter at Charlie W Carter, and on Instagram at Alpha Charlie Photos. That's with a PH and YouTube at AlphaCharlie6572. That's where people can find you flying around your Concord, right? Correct. Awesome. Oh, <laughs> Carter, you got to like write more about that Concord story too. That email you sent me was amazing. Yes, I'm, I'm very disappointed in myself. I never released that. I wrote to her because it was the 20th anniversary in November for the last ever Concord flight and I was, I'd written a story ready to release and I never got around to it. Oh, you got to do it. You got to do it. Jamin, I don't think I asked you yet. Where can people find you? I'm not really able to be found (laughs) on Twitter or Instagram anymore. Twitter I still have in case Elon Musk sells it and somebody respectful 
picks it back up and turns it back into what it used to be, then I'll probably go back there. But I'm spending quite a bit of time trying out threads. You can find me at jaminbull at threads.net. I'm also trying to be active on threads via the MJCast account, the MJCast at threads.net. I was using Mastodon quite a bit, but the people running threads are now talking about threads becoming interoperable with Mastodon, which is really great news for me. That's uh, the only place you can kind of find me rambling about various things to do with technology and or Michael Jackson. Cool. And... I'm Elise Capron. I am on Facebook. I am on, I appear on Twitter occasionally. I'm on Instagram. You can always find me at Elise Capron, just my name. And as for the MJ cast, we are across social media, even if we're not as active as we used to be. We're on Instagram, Mastodon, Twitter slash X threads. We do post to YouTube. We are not currently on Facebook. We will be back there someday, maybe. And of course, you can always find all of our episodes with show notes and other information at the mjcast.com. Also remember that we do have a little merch shop if you ever want to support the MJ cast and have some fun MJ slash podcast designs, all original designs by Jamin. You can check that out at Redbubble. Just search for the MJ cast. We're there. And if you hear an episode you really like and want to throw us the cost of a coffee, really enjoyed it, that sort of thing. We always truly appreciate that. And you can find us on PayPal at the MJ cast, or you can link through our website. And all of those donations go straight toward helping us pay for our website and upgrading equipment, as well as occasional charity donations. And thank you guys for, for any of you who have donated. I try really hard to make sure I at least send a quick note. If I somehow did not send you a note, please know we still deeply, deeply appreciate it. It means a lot to us. But with that in mind, guys, I think that is a wrap. Thank you so, so much again. And I hope you guys have a really happy holiday season. To our listeners, we're wishing you a great Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever you celebrate. And, um, you know, we'll see you in the new year. There's going to be all kinds of stuff till then. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll visit with you again in maybe February or March. We're going to go take a little winter break for ourselves and uh, come back refreshed and with lots of exciting episodes lined up. So thanks again and take care. Thank you to Elise, to you, Carter, to Taj. Thank you so much. And also to Father Charlesmas. Merry Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Keep Michaeling. Oh, stay bad. (laughs) Where's everyone's sign-offs? We've done ours. Come on.
Well, also, Carter, I, I, I should say as well, thank you so much for all of the time you've edited uh, episodes this season because, you know, out of all the jobs that we each contribute to the MJ cast, editing is the one that takes up the most amount of hours. So thank you for your sacrifice and everything you've done for the show as well. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're more than welcome. I've just realized that it's it's now 34 episodes uh, that I've been involved with the show, which That's is wow. just incredible. Oh my um, but I have to give a special thank you, of course, to all of you, uh, especially this season, Jamin, for jumping in and rescuing me when I either couldn't edit or my time management was just shit house. No. So I just, it's all good. Sorry. All my time management was just terrible. <laughs> no, 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 Carter. You've got lots of balls in the air juggling around. So, right all right. Now, I, okay. I caught half of that. I'm so sorry. But in this episode, I've mentioned your balls and I've asked Arch Jackson to drop a nugget. This is terrible. Uh, <laughs>